Greetings and welcome to the Centralized Justice Broadcast. My name is Federico Ast. I am CEO at Claros, and thank you for joining us. My co-host is Damian Malvasic, and how are you, Damian, today? It's a beautiful day, as always, in Serbia right now, in the city of Valjevo. And actually, it's kind of an, an impressive thing sitting in a small town in Serbia, actually discussing some serious topics about innovation and technology with one of the biggest names out there, Salim Ismail. Yes, and as Daniel said, our guest today is Salim Ismail, best-selling author and founder of EXO Foundation. How are you today, Salim? Uh, very well, thank you. Great to be here. Good. Let me let me give you a bit of, about Salim. So Salim Ismail was head of innovation at Yahoo uh, and founding executive director of Singularity University, where I did the, the GSP program in 2016, and is a part uh, of the board of the XPRIZE organization. Salim is also founder of EXO Foundation, working on introducing global companies into the concept of exponential thinking. And he's author of the best-selling book, Exponential Organizations, who, which I very strongly recommend to everyone, uh, which is one of the most influential reads on the global transformation of business. Um, Salim has been featured in many influential media outlets, such as the New York Times, The Wired, Forbes, Bloomberg, Business Week, and the BBC, and also has some really, really interesting TED Talks. I just uh, saw today uh, one about how to fix civilization that you gave in 2016, uh, and that was awesome to, to, to remind Uh, a bit about the, the old times. Um, and so let's start with, like we start with all of our guests. Um, tell us a bit about your, your early career, Salim, how you, yeah, how you started and what brought you to, to this day. Uh, so probably like many of your guests, I've had a very unconventional uh, history. I, I grew up in India to a diplomatic family. Um, actually, my grandmothers on both sides knew Gandhi and Nehru very well. Um, And we, I emigrated to Canada when I was 10 years old uh, because my father hated noise, dirt, pollution, and corruption. So India is not so great for that. Um, and did my schooling in university in Canada. Then I went to Europe for 10 years, um, restructuring large European companies, and then uh, came to the U.S. 20 years ago. And I spent seven years in New York, seven years in Silicon Valley, a few years in Miami, and I'm back up in Toronto now. Uh, so that's been my, my journey. Amazing stuff. Um, so once I, I would like to focus uh, on, on your experience in the Silicon Valley, um, knowing that you are such, such, such a great mind that, that influenced many in, 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 your, in your own time and still are now, uh, can you tell a little, a little about your Silicon Valley experience? What, is, what are the key learnings sort of you, you, you made uh, being there? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it starts in New York. I built uh, the predecessor to Twitter uh, um, based on a new architecture at the time. And we were two years too early because social networks hadn't been invented yet and nobody knew what to subscribe to. It's very ba bad in the tech space to be early. It's much mm. better to be late, uh, by the way. Um, and so, uh, but the, but the, uh, the company got me well known and that's how I ended up at Yahoo. They said, Hey, come and run our incubator. I learned a fundamental lesson at Yahoo, which is when you attempt disruptive innovation in a big organization or any legacy environment, the immune system attacks you and you get stuck in a political fight and all the antibodies come out. And I was struck by the fact that you could expect this problem at a bank or a telco, but Yahoo is like eight years old. Why should it have this problem? Uh, and so that was kind of foundational there. Uh, then uh, from there, I went to Singularity University. And, of course, we kind of see the outcomes there. I was involved with Singularity for about seven, eight years 
uh, building the first teams and then running most of the programs for a few years. Um, I think the the kind of the two or three key bullet points would be number one, um, in most places in the world, if you say you want to change the world, the rest of society will pull you back down. And Silicon Valley is one place where they'll say, oh, how do you plan on doing that? And they'll at least listen to you. I think that's one. The second and maybe the biggest one is that they relate to failure as experience. Um, and and um, and that that kind of cultural acceptance of, okay, we took a risk, it failed, great, try another one, is something that doesn't exist elsewhere in the world. And that's a fundamental reason why Silicon Valley is so successful mm-hmm. or has been. I do think the, the tech world has lost touch with reality. And we set up Singularity University there because we wanted to uh, focus on solving global problems and mm-hmm. and bring people more into line with that thinking. So that's kind of my experiences there. Tell, tell us a bit about <clears throat> this experience of um, the early days of Singularity. What, what, what was the vision? Uh, um, what was the, the project back then? Uh, sure. So people learn about that too. Sure. So, you know, the, the, um, um, I went to, I set up a relationship between Yahoo and NASA to do some interesting projects when I was doing Yahoo. And then when I left Yahoo, NASA said, Hey, come and help us with a few things. And one day they invited me to the founding conference of Singularity University. And honestly, I'd never heard of Peter Diamandis. I'd never heard of the X Prize. I'd never even heard of Ray Kurzweil. And somehow I had not heard of the Singularity. And so I walked in completely blank and I asked a, a lot of questions on how are you going to manage this? And about two weeks later, Peter said, would you like to run it? And, and there you go. I was a dean. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and so we built it out. And the premise was threefold. One was we have a set of uh, exponentially growing technologies in a way that we've never seen before that are doubling in their price performance very radically. Um, neuroscience, biotech, 3D printing, AI, blockchain, you name it. And, and um, the idea was we need future leaders to be able to harness this acceleration. And mm-hmm. so the number one was focused only on ha- fast-moving technologies. Number two was focused on solving, using those uh, to solve global problems because they scale naturally. And the number third, third thing that was very mm-hmm. unique was about 80% of the curriculum was about the future. Uh, you know, most academics is about the past. How did this model happen? How did this <clears throat> develop? Mm-hmm. We kind of went, if you're a leader today, you really need to know where the world is going. So where are these technologies intersecting? What are the what are the next two, three, five, seven years look like for biotech or blockchain? Who are the thought leaders and labs doing the most interesting work? Uh, what intersections, what inflection points should you be tracking that will indicate acceleration? And then and then we want people practiced in that model. Uh, so that when they when something new happened, they could expect it, know the conversation around it, etc. So that was the rationale behind it. And then we spun off companies, nonprofits, research projects to try and fulfill that. So that was the basic premise of that too. Um, let me just add something um, for audience that um, may not know. Like uh, I, I I went to a program at Singularity called Global Solutions Program in 2016. It was um program when you spend like three months into a NASA campus in Silicon Valley with other like 79 people working on like nanotechnology, uh, exponential, uh, like biology, biotechnology, uh, robotics, virtual reality, AI. I'm trying to, each of us try to solve a problem, a big problem in the in the world, like uh, the water supply or food or education or etc. 
Um, it's an experience that is like life changing. And in my in my uh, experience, it was a um, catalyst for me. Like I, wa- I I went there with the idea of innovation, innovating in law, right? Um, and yep. then um, it it was really like the the catalyst I needed to like me to know that I could do it. Like what? Because the the, the, the I, I was just a guy from Buenos Aires. Like what 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 can I? I can't really do some like global project. Um, and yeah, who am I? I'm just a little guy. So, but being at Singularity, what I learned that anyone can do this. And like the most important companies in the world were built by people like who started like anyone, right? The and I think that the inspirational like role of Singularity was was very important in what Cleros is is today. Uh, so I'm, I'm, it was a really important step in in, the, in my career and my life, of course. You know, this this sort of brings me to my to my following question. Uh, you you mentioned at the at, a little while ago the 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 point of you know tech companies and generally technologists being sort of out of touch with reality. And I think that this sort of as a statement works both in a positive sense and in a and in a negative sense. In the positive sense, it is something that actually gives us the space to think forward, to yeah. think about how we can reshape. Uh, institutions but sort of if we take a look at the way the way the world is now in 2020 like half of 2020 towards the end we see this big uh, backlash towards big companies built in the valley they they were accused of manipulating elections uh, sentiment manipulation in general and 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 many different things this kind of a narrative of technology being a tool for progress is we see it sort of fading a little bit and it seems that now technology is perceived as something that's used for manipulation and control has silicon valley broken its promise of being a force for social good uh has it broken its promise i think in parts yes because the you know the technologists are out for mind share and market share and attention share right and so whether it's facebook or google or whoever they're fighting every tooth and nail for every um half a second of your time on their app or on their website or whatever and so then you basically, the ethics goes by the window because if you're not uh, doing that, somebody else is, and you end up with the lowest common denominator. And mm-hmm. so that's one fundamental issue. And the, the minute that profits come into it, uh, you have a, a double issue. So Facebook uh, has, it may be, they may have an ethical side saying we should really not broadcast political ads. But when people are paying you a fortune to broadcast political ads and you've got shareholders and you're a public company on Wall Street, uh, that becomes secondary to the fact that you uh, you can do that. And why would you incur the cost if you can offload the cost into onto the public and onto the media? Um, and so, um, I mean, the cost of moderation and being sensible about things. Mm. So you look at that, or you look at Twitter allowing, you know, he, he his Twitter account should have been banned 50 times over. Uh, mm. But if you ban Trump, you kind of lose half of Twitter. Uh, and so they have a huge incentive not to do that. So they hide behind First Amendment or other things, even those violating their own terms of service. So I think the issue is more of capitalism rather than Silicon Valley itself. The aspiration in Silicon Valley, I think, is still very uh, profound. And I think Elon Musk is the best exemplar of that. Um, and, and Federico speaks to what you said earlier. Uh, he's just one person with a mindset that basically says, I want to go to Mars, I want to solve energy, I want to solve transportation. I've got three, what we call massive mm-hmm. transformative purposes, and I'm going for it. And the mindset is what gets them there. 
And, um, and that mindset is what's relevant about Silicon Valley and very powerful. And your point is very valid. It does give you, being there does give you the, the permission to kind of think big and think crazy. Uh, now, just in general terms, there is a huge backlash against technology today. But I, I will note Ray Kurzweil's comment that technology is a major driver of progress in the world. And actually, it might be the only major driver of progress in the world. Um, the last comment I would make is note that our brains are always focused on the negative, uh, with the amygdala and other things. So we always look for the, the downside of things. We, we, we very quickly ignore the positive side of technology. We kind of forget it very, very quickly. Um, you know, it take, uh, take Syria, for example, um, mm. Uh, um, Assad might have killed 10 times more civilians, but there's so many people watching, he has to behave himself a little bit more. Um, and so there's the positive side that we don't really report on and we don't really talk too much about. You always see the negative. And so on the positive side, note that through texting and through WhatsApp, whatever, say my babysitter's late to come over, I know exactly what the situation is. 20 years ago, you didn't even know if they were going to show up. And you lived in this much in this world of much, much, much bigger uncertainty, risk, the unknown, etc., we actually know things to a profoundly uh, uh, granular level today. We just don't, we discount it is what happens. Hmm. Um, and this is so, a good now, way to... Just, yeah, a, just okay. an important point. I am a technology optimist on this side. So just bear, I have a bias around that. So you have to take that into account. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I, I also share, you know, um, this, uh, well, I went to Singularity and the, the first, uh, the first talk we got at Singularity was, I remember uh, Peter Diamandis uh, showing us a number of, of slides of, look, yeah, people think that the world is, is going, is going to, to shit. But, you know, if you see like this through with um, an objective eye and you, and he started sh showing a number of slides, okay, life expectancy up, um, like literacy up. Uh, poverty down and all, like if you, you see that there is a long-term trend but in the end the narrative of progress it, it's still valid uh, right very very valid my favorite example is extreme poverty and so if you went back using standard inflation adjusted dollars <clears throat> 200 years ago in 1820 94% of the world lived in extreme poverty and today's 8.9% So, you know, we've, we've, we, Bill Gates thinks we will eradicate extreme poverty in this decade. And you will just not see that in the news because it's good news. And it's a profound, profound commentary that we're lifting the entire world out of poverty in 200 years. Um, and that's what that's delivered largely through technology and market forces and other things. And yet we need to transition past those now. Good. Um, and I, I, this brings me to my next question. So, We've seen this world of abundance coming through technology and through basically disrupting all the ways of, of doing things. You know, the digital revolution transform, you know, media, the bookstores, retail. But still, we have governments still working with the logic of, I'd say, 19th century, if you want. So what's, what's next for, for our political institutions in the world of digital transformation? Well, this is a huge issue. And I think the, the biggest structural issue today is that our governance models can't keep pace with technology, right? Um, it, just take democracy. We, we invented representative democracy a few hundred years ago when information was scarce. So if you were in Washington, D.C., you literally didn't know what was happening in California. The speed of a horse was as fast as you could find out. And so 
the, the reason that parliaments and countries or Congress or, or Senate meets occasionally is to literally give people time to cross the country and say, here's what my people are thinking. Uh, so the institutions in our political structures that were designed, as you said, for that time. Today, we have an abundance of misinformation that gets misused, misinterpreted, faked. And every major democracy in the world is broken, right? Brazil is broken. India, where I'm from, originally is broken. Uh, um, the UK broke three years ago. The US is breaking in front of our eyes. Uh, and so the big challenge, and the, I think the fundamental reason is the metabolism of democracy and decision-making is too slow for the pace of change. Mm. And so you have two options. One is to either speed up the democracy, which is very hard, or break it up into smaller pieces. And so I believe the, 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 what we're going to see is over the next, say, 50, 70 years, a massive de-emphasis on nation-states and, an, and a much bigger emphasis on cities and city-states. One of the things that sort of attaches to this in a way and something that I would love to dis discuss a little bit, it has to do with one of the, let's say, fundamental points that, that you make throughout your talks and in your book. It's the question of exponential institutions. Now, in this sort of, uh, uh, if we take this, this path down decentralization avenue in the next, let's say, 10, 20 years, um, how do you see these exponential organizations sort of transforming? Can they are they able, and in what way to transform uh, government institutions? Yeah, so you know when I wrote the book, um, we had no idea whether whether this was a the, we'd done two and a half years of research to show that organizations operated like this. Um, what totally surprised me a year ago was I met a guy called Nishan Degnerain, and he he was the minister of oceans in Mauritius. And he said, oh, I've been waiting for a year to meet you. And I said, how come? And he said, I ran the enti my entire ministry on your book. Well, I was like, wait, what? It was designed for kind of <laughs> private sector organizations. But as we, as the uh, six years in now, uh, it's pretty clear. We, we have a fundamental foundation statement saying that in the future, all organizations have to be exponential organizations or have those characteristics. Because in the future, organizations will need to be purpose-driven agile, decentralized, scalable. And you have to have all those four characteristics, otherwise you will not survive or you won't be as effective as you could be. Governments have a natural massive, what I call an MTP or a massive transformative purpose because you're in service to the people. So there's a natural purpose-driven side there. Now the question is how to make it scalable. And the big challenge I see in our institutions, let's say education or journalism or whatever, is that we don't have a feedback loop for breakthroughs in technology or changes. Social media comes along and completely changes journalism, but the journalists are operating as if they were 100 years old. Hmm. And so they're not adapt. Institutions are very slow to adapt. So when I talk about immune systems, uh, this is, we focused our ecosystem focuses on this immune system problem because if you cannot solve the resistance to change from the inside of a company or government or institution, say, teachers fighting educational reform, then you can't solve the problem. You get stuck in a political fight, right? So we have a big problem with companies not being able to innovate quickly enough, but that's a that's not a big deal. Market forces will take care of that. It's much worse when our public sector environments can't innovate and keep up. And then you have institutions like education, journalism, monetary policy, which are much worse. The level after that that has a really, really bad immune system is academia. Uh, God help you if you try and update that. And maybe the biggest one is religion. 
uh, which has uh, a very strong immune system, and they will literally kill you if you say bad things about the religion. Um, and so we've got to solve that problem, in my opinion. And so we've focused almost all of my work now solving that problem and providing and open sourcing that tool set so that if we have a breakthrough somewhere, we can actually get it freaking implemented. Because right now, it doesn't matter what the technology breakthroughs are, we can't get them implemented. Or if they do get implemented, they get implemented like social media has, and it's being used by bad actors. Um, so um, tell us a bit about um, EXO um, and some of your projects. So how your experience in trying to bring innovation to government, so these big like institutions with this huge uh, immune system. So what's your experience at EXO and, and this type of transformations? Yeah, so let me just describe my ecosystem for a minute. So from the book, we started with a small community of 100 people that helped me edit the book. That grew to about 600 people last year. And then we opened it up. And now we're 6,400 consultants in 130 countries. And we've, we uh, create tools to solve this immune system problem. So in private sector and big companies, we've created a 10-week process called the EXO Sprint that transforms the in internal culture and hacks culture at scale in a big company, which is kind of like a holy grail of change management. Um, and we've done that. We piloted it with Procter Gamble. We've now done it 30 times with Black Decker, HP Visa, and so on. So that's we have a boutique consulting firm that does that. Uh, three, four years ago, we decided let's now take a, a crack at the public sector because they're the existing policies, the immune system, as, as you guys know very well, right? You have mm -hmm. bank groups fighting Bitcoin and taxis fighting Uber. So we formed a nonprofit out of Miami called the Fast Track Institute, um, adapted the process. It takes 16 weeks in public sector, but it works. Um, and we've run it four times in Medellin, in Colombia, in uh, mobility, financial inclusion, uh, um, um, a couple of other areas. We ran it with the mayor of Miami to transform public transportation two years ago. And then last year, we did the same process with the Supreme Court in Colombia, Uh, along with President Duque's office to transform the justice system in Colombia. So our ecosystem is basically for-profit and non-profit process frameworks to solve the legacy resistance. Uh, now what I'm working on is how would you trans create a sprint to transform uh, an institution like democracy or journalism or uh, education or whatever. We worked out there's about 40 or 50 major institutions by which we run the world. And, and they all need to be transformed. So we need to create a tool set for that. And that's what we're working on now. Very interesting. One thing, because sort of government institutions and their transformation is something that personally interests me immensely. Um, could you give us a little bit of insight on the learnings you've had working in, in Medellin, for example, or anywhere else across across the planet? How did the process work? Because looking at the way Serbia, where I'm from, has had a reform process or a quasi-reform process happening for the last 20 years that has been... In, incredibly ineffective and something that has pretty much been dragged down by corruption and all sorts of, as you mentioned before, bad actors. So yeah. how, how did you manage to turn this around? How, what did you learn from it? Yeah, let me describe the Miami case study because it's, I think, the most illustrative one. Okay, So yeah. Miami was about to spend $6 billion dollars on light rail. Um, And I got named uh, uh, the Miami Entrepreneur of the Year or something. And so they, the mayor had to talk to me. And I gave a talk at city council. And I basically said, why are you spending $6 billion dollars on 18th century technology? 
right? It's not a great use of taxpayer money. Um, and so they got excited about it. They said, let's do something. And to full credit, they got involved, uh, sponsored the project. We raised uh, the money from local foundations and family offices like the Knight Foundation in Miami, etc. And we ran the process. Typically takes about $500,000 to run the process. Um, Two thirds goes to running the process. Uh, and a, a third is kept aside to accelerate ideas coming out of it. We start off with a bringing all the stakeholders together into a, a one-day workshop like the mayor's office, the citizens groups, the transportation commission, the real estate folks, the etc. so that you have a good spectrum and you've got all the stakeholders involved. Then we do a kind of a three-quarter day singularity university style shock and awe session, mm-hmm. showing here the breakthroughs that could are possible in transportation, hyperloop and autonomous cars and electric scooters and 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 uh, uh, and passenger drones, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that freaks them out and shows them what the possibilities are. And the and the objective we set is we we want to drop the cost or increase effectiveness by ten x. So what could it look like if we were able to drop the cost of transportation ten times? Um, so that we start there. That that kind of shows the status quo what's possible. We then launch four teams of entrepreneurs. Uh, typically two-thirds from our community, one-third from the local environment so that you have the local knowledge. And they, they, the four of them, uh, the four teams compete through four or five stages, a design stage, a technology stage, um, a regulatory stage, and then a business model stage of solutions that they would see that they think is, is uh, would transform that problem space. And then at the end, the stakeholders vote on which solutions they like. So out of the Miami Sprint, it takes 16 weeks, end to end. We end up with about 10,000 hours spent mm-hmm. on the problem, which is kind of a really profound thing. And what we're doing is we're basically bringing the entire stakeholder communities along with us on that journey, and that's how the transformation happens. Now what's happened in Miami is they've scrapped the $6 billion light rail project, mm-hmm. and they're doing they're testing, they're running multiple small, small experiments. They're doing ride-sharing in the core downtown corridor. They're testing scooters on Miami Beach. They're testing electric bikes in Doral. And when they see something working, that merges into the mainstream uh, procurement and infrastructure. So essentially, we've transformed legacy top-down RFI, RFP, long-term technology deployment into kind of a lean, agile environment that is evidentiary and local. Amazing. And yeah. so that's what we can achieve in 16 weeks. Uh, and so we've done it now seven times. So we're super excited. We, there's definitely a pony in there. And and uh, and the the uh, outcomes are well proven. Uh, so my vision for the future, okay, is the following: I would like to, in every major city in the world, put together a community of a, about a thousand, what I call super citizens, kind of like a Peace Corps or a Code for America kind of citizens brigade of young, future focused, uh, execution oriented folks. It's, uh, think about it as a as an intersection of the. TEDx, SU, Davos Young Global Leader, EXO, YPO communities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you let them vote up and down what problems they want to see solved, and then we show up with breakthrough solutions and let them let them solve, let them focus on uh, and vote which ones they want, and we give them the tool sets to implement them. Uh, primarily, one would be to break that immune system, and so we've curated now about thirty or forty such breakthrough ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, and focus. We we want to focus at a city level because, as I said, I think nation states were designed for the 18th century and 19th century and don't work uh, in the 20th century. Democracy does not work at a at a large nation state level going forward. Uh, count me in for for being one of these super citizens. If you need one of them, we're gonna count you in. I'd like you guys to help run the whole thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we we will have to negotiate that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's a lot of work to do. So, as you know, you know, you know that this this makes me think that this this may be uh, a special an especially good moment for this type of innovation because um, actually because of COVID, um, you know. Yes. That, You mentioned that the immune systems blocking all kind of change, but you know, I, I will speak for Argentina. In Argentina, um, Congress has started to hold, hold like sessions over Zoom, and courts have online hearings. This, if you ask me, like uh, one year ago, when I would expect this to happen, I, I would say like in 30 years, right? So, our our mindset is more open to innovation, uh, and and yeah, and I think that maybe. This COVID situation, with all the bad, obvious things it has, it has opened the mind of people for 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 innovation. What do you think of that? Uh, I think there's a f uh, f it's fabulous for that. Uh, I, I think of Corona as the biggest opportunity that the world has ever seen in 500 years. Okay, the reason I say that it is forced. You know, we have a global super tanker running on traditional capitalism and. Um, And uh, uh, fossil fuels, basically, uh, and that and Corona forced that global super tanker to stop. Now, when the super tanker is moving along and you try and change direction, it's very, very hard because the momentum is all there. But now that it's stopped, we can basically grab the wheel and wrench it. Now, when I look at uh, governments using Zoom and so on, I think it's all very nice, but I think it's dectures on the Titanic, honestly, because you're doing the same thing; you're just doing it faster. Right. Whereas, where I think we need a fundamental restructuring of of our governance models from the bottom up, and I think we have an incredible opportunity to do that. As I, I think it was Paul Romer who said, "A crisis is a terrible thing to waste," and I think we can use this as an opportunity to grab the wheel of the super tanker. The best the best analogy I have for I've heard for what's happening right now is comes from a guy called Lawrence Bloom, um, and he said, "You have to look at." capitalism and fossil fuels and nation states as the booster rocket. Uh, you know, when a rocket lifts off, you have a big, solid, massive engine, uh, very hot and very messy to get you out of the low earth gravity well. Uh, then, then you get to out of the atmosphere, you have to get rid of that booster rocket and, and take on a much lighter craft to take you to the moon or take you wherever. Um, and you have to, you have to ditch that uh, fossil fuel Uh, booster rocket just at the right time. If you hang on to it too long, you'll go, you'll tumble back to earth. And if you leave it too early, you won't get out of the gravity. Well, I think uh, the traditional capitalism, uh, our energy structures, our, 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 our governance models have gotten us to this point and we could not have gotten here without it, but now we need completely new models. And what I love about what you guys are doing is exploring those new models, right? Uh, blockchain-based, whatever, et cetera. And I think we need to move to those. And we have, Corona gives us the opportunity to move to those models. 
it's it's extremely interesting you know coming from from let's say uh, a place in the world where pessimism abounds and it's something that that sort of is 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 the the, the main food that we consume hearing things like this truly uh, uh, strikes at the heart I have to say and just coming from from where I'm coming from you know listening to your talks you know before and 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 you know, hearing, we even mentioned him a couple of times now, Peter Diamandis and, you know, his book Abundance and all of these things. It seems to me all of these things seem so powerful as messages. But if, if you can, just for a minute to play, let's sort of say the, the devil's advocate in some kind of sense, what yeah. would be the risk factors of all of this? You know, because let's put it this way. In Serbia, we've we've had hope for, for many years that things are going to change, but sort of it always ends up in the same loop of, you know, corruption, bad actors sort of uh, dissolving the foundations of anything healthy that's built what would be the risk factors for us on a global scale moving forward and trying to implement these new models well i think there's two ways of looking at it um one is doing things in a new way always entails some sort of risk uh, but i think the much much higher order bit is the fact of not doing anything uh, kills you um, and I think we have to move to new models because the old ones just don't work. The, uh, the old models lead us to exactly to where we are. Look at the U.S., right? Um, it's literally we're seeing democracy dissolve in front of our eyes, right? Um, and uh, you kind of think it can't happen. I don't know if you guys saw the paper that was circulated during the uh, 2016 election called Death to How a Democracy Dies. Did you guys see this? I did not. Uh, I would, I no, 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 no. It's like a three-page paper that says the way a democracy dies is that the population gets comfortable in the democracy and takes it for granted. Mm. They then elect a leader from the elites who's a populist who pretends to be for the workers but is really there to pillage the country. That leader then takes over and starts totally destroying the institutions actively um, uh, and then destroys the foundations of democracy, and then you have authoritarianism. And that's how democracy dies. At the bottom, you see who wrote the paper, and it was Plato in 2000 BC. Hmm. Okay? <laughs> like, they, this is like, holy shit, he's describing Bolsonaro, he's describing Trump, he's describing, like, the exact model yeah. happening in 16 places around the world. Um, and we're watching this in real time, and you realize that these guys you know, from a systemic point of view, you it's time for it to die because the metabolism is too slow, etc. You need to build a new. And the, 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 I think the work to do for leaders today is to recognize that the old is done. Hmm. Uh, just for climate change, if no other reason, right? But income inequality, uh, wealth disparity, um, uh, governance models, corruption, etc. Um uh, uh, there's the whole thing about the economy. Um, we, we just had one of our uh, SU alumni, the chairman of YPO uh, Vancouver, publish a book called The Price of Tomorrow. Okay, mm. It's really worth reading this book. It's a thin book uh, on the macroeconomic. He's observed very simple reality. Today we're creating $4 in global debt for every dollar increase in GDP. Hmm. Okay, this is a total disaster, and and that's before Corona, and now we're just printing money like it's going out of style because we're trying to deal with this. So we're basically building in massive deflation and and uh, inflation into the currencies and deflation into the economy, and at some point that's all going to explode. Um, 
what what if you look past at at, at civilizations of the future of the past, uh, um, you know, um, Federico, you said you heard my fixing civilizations talk, right? Yeah. yeah. I forgot my final line in that talk, which was when you when you uh, finish when you have look at all the major civilizations of the past, the Romas, Romans, the Incas, the Mayans, the the Egyptians. They got to very very sophisticated societal structures. Then they hit a boundary condition and they all collapsed and they collapsed very, very suddenly. Right. Mm. When you talk to the Yuval Hararis and the Nile Ferguson's, those conditions are all there today. So my belief is that in the next 10, 15 years, Corona probably being the triggering function, we're going to see a global collapse of, of civilization. And the idea, the, the work that I think that we need to do is set up the new structure so that when the old fails, it fails over more elegantly, and we don't end up in 300 years of the Dark Ages. Hmm. You know, I have so many things I could react about this. Um, no, you mentioned... You mentioned, you mentioned uh, sorry, sorry, let me just make one... Yeah. Uh, you, you were, the, the, we got to this point because you're asking about the pessimism, etc., etc. Um, note that when things get bad enough, you end up with massive, massive transformation. Look at the transformation in Rwanda, right? Mm. Or look at the transformation in Medellin in Colombia. Um, if you went back 20 years ago and you said this is where Medellin will be, nobody would believe you. Nobody would believe that Rwanda would be where it is today. Hmm. Okay? Uh, it's, it just seems that things have to be get bad enough before we as human beings decide, all right, let's do something about it. Might as well transform. And then we reluctantly show up and do the work. Um, my, my fundamental conclusion about humanity is that people would much rather be comfortable than happy. Hmm. That's, that's a sad, a sad conclusion. But you know, um, I, I was, I was willing to, to react to this because, you know, I started my, my career. So I'm, I'm majoring in philosophy. So I, when you mentioned the paper of Plato and how this populist will come to, to destroy the, the nation. Yeah. So that's, that, that was a discussion that the, the ancient Greek had. For for long yeah. time, right? And how to they, they used to call them demagogues, and and they right. and they try to build a, a system of, of government. You know, the, demo, the Greek democracy was quite different to what we have as democracy. It was very much based on on sortition and random selection of citizens for yes for positions, and and they use this this device called cleroterion. It's an allotment device that well, that's where the name of cleros comes from 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 that device because it selects jurors at random. Um, and the, I want to connect this to some other references you made that I think I, I caught them and uh, about the world of nation states fading and uh, and the, the world of city states coming coming back as it was maybe in the Renaissance. This is pretty much a reference, I guess, to sovereign individual, right? <laughs> uh, yes, and there's a whole bunch of uh, theses around this now where, you know, you take the big cities in the world, Sao Paulo, Tokyo, Mexico City, Shanghai, they're bigger and more complex than almost any country was 100 years ago, right? Um, and also, then when you take solar energy and uh, vertical farms coming along, uh, local healthcare uh, possibilities, you can now run a city-state totally independent from a nation-state. It doesn't need the same infrastructure that you needed 100, 200 years ago. Hmm. Uh, in fact, the next generation, like Puerto Rico, is now being rebuilt with microgrids. Uh, same with the Philippines. They, we will, we're going to replace, and you see that with the blockchain, right? I'm fa I'm totally fascinated and passionate about the 
the possibilities that the blockchain brings for uh, decentralized and trustless systems, et cetera, et cetera. We, we did, I had a long conversation with Hernando de Soto, and you probably know about his project where he tried to put land titles on the blockchain, right, yeah. in the Honduras. Um, the problem is you run into the immune system problem because try telling a government that they're, they won't be authoritative of who owns what land. And they'll just totally shut you down because if you if the government can't say how do you how do you take bribes, um, <laughs> uh, big problem. Uh, and this is an issue in in India where where bribes are how the civil servants make money. Uh, and so uh, and so we 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 now we have solved corruption. Uh, Indonesia did an amazing job in in working out, and so we know how to solve it. We just have to have the will to do it. Um, so I think the answers are all there. I think the future looks unbelievably bright, in my opinion. I think we, we have two futures in front of us. And we did a whole conference around this in March called Exo World. And we basically said, look, we've got two possibilities as Corona hits us. Uh, we can either have a Mad Max future or we can have a Star Trek future. And we have to actively choose the Star Trek future because the default and where we're heading is the Mad Max future. <clears throat> Yeah. Um, so Salim, this is yeah. Um, this is amazing. I would I could stay like for hours and hours, but um, I want to 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 be respectful of your time. So I'm just going to to ask you one last question, sure, uh, and then we can wrap this up. So in this world, uh, that this world is in a kind of a dualistic stage. You no, know, on the one side we have the the best technology we ever had in the history of mankind, right? And uh, yeah. And we have all the, yeah all, all these productive powers, etc. And then on the other side, we are in all locked down in our houses in <laughs> because of a virus, and and it doesn't look like the world is going to a um, best uh, yeah scenario. And which was the promise of I guess Silicon Valley and, and Singularity uh, specifically. So what's 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 coming and what what's up for mankind in the coming years? And can we fix civilization? Can we fix? I believe we can. Because uh, I, the reason I'm optimistic is when you can, if you can solve that immune system problem, then anything is possible. If you can't solve that immune system problem, then nothing is possible. And we now have demonstrated that we can solve that immune system problem in both private and public sector. And, and I'm now working on a sprint for institutions like journalism and education, which we have a pretty clear sense of how to go about fixing that. So we're on a plan and a vision to architect and implement this outcome. And I don't think we have, you know, the, the reason I think it works is that we have no other option. Mm -hmm. um, we, can't, we can't go back to the way we were, mm -hmm. right? It just doesn't work for any number of reasons. And I'll just pick climate change as the one. We have no choice but to go forward. I mean, it's like you're, you're stuck. Uh, you have to get to the, the train station or subway station, but it's pouring rain. There's nothing to do but to get wet and run for it. Uh, and I think that's where humanity is right now. We're kind of huddled under the bus stop waiting for the rain to stop. It's not going to stop raining. We just have to make a run for it and go. And we'll get wet, but we'll get there. And what we've seen throughout our history, uh, it's the fundamental driver of life is to survive and progress, uh, is that we always find a way. It may not be very pleasant, and it's very uncomfortable, but we will get there. Thank you very much, Salim, uh, for your time. And this was an amazing, an amazing conversation. Uh, this was Salim Ismail at the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. Uh, see you in the next episode. Bye bye. Mm -hmm.